Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It is episode 221. We are recording this live on October 7th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today again by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello, good morning, as it is in the UK. And thank you for having me on yet again. Surely you've got to get sick of this soon. <laughs> I'm not getting sicky. I love having you on the show. Uh, speaking of the show, we got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about using augmented reality in space for repairs. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about putting school projects on LinkedIn, the difference between contracted and permanent positions, and approaches to starting a new project to ins- improve some skills. But first, uh, just to go over some uh, programming notes or community updates. Uh, this one's an exciting one for me. Uh, we now have Human Factors Minute available outside of Patreon for the first time ever. Um, now you can get Human Factors Minute in Spotify. We have all 84 episodes there available for you. And if you're unaware, Human Factors Minute is uh, a separate podcast that we do that breaks down little chunks of human factors and one little minute bits. So you can uh, get your kind of human factors fix for supporting the show. Uh, we'll update that on Spotify with the same cadence as our patrons. Of course, you could always pay one penny more and get access to uh, Patreon stuff like Patrons Choose the News, our weekly Q&As, our full audio versions of the podcast, which include a pre and post show we do every week. Uh, I'll put a link to the Human Factors Minute and Spotify in the description of this episode, and Patreon is also down there. Uh, also, for programming notes, uh, HFES 2021 was this year. Um, we usually pick up a lot of folks around conferences, and so just want to welcome everyone who might be new to the show. Welcome all you new listeners. Uh, if you were at the event, uh, we'd love to hear from you to kind of hear about your experience the first time in person since 2020. 19. Uh, so, you know, uh, go to our website, leave a voicemail there. There's a little microphone in the bottom right hand corner, or you can go to, you know, we'll leave a link in the description for a voicemail. Um, we're going to do coverage on HFES 2021 a little later this month. Uh, there's a virtual, there's an in-person session, which happened this week. And then there's a virtual session that's happening a little later out in the month. And we're going to try to do our conference coverage uh, to cover both sides of things. We have uh, some folks from our lab that went in person. Uh, we know some people that went so we can kind of get in touch with them and see how it was like uh, boots on the ground, so to speak. And then kind of from the uh, from the perspective of the virtual event, which I, I will be at. Uh, but with that, uh, I think it's time that we get into... Human Factors News. Yes, this is the part of the show where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. Barry, what's our news story this week? So this week we talked about the new uh, new augmented reality applications that assist astronauts repair the space station. So often communication delays between the ISS and the ground are nearly unnoticeable. But as NASA prepares to explore the moon and eventually Mars... NASA is developing tools to increase astronaut autonomy to operate the spacecraft or systems without assistance because communication delays from the Earth will last longer. So the T2 Augmented Reality, T2AR, project demonstrates how uh, station crew members can inspect and maintain scientific and exercise equipment critical to maintaining crew health and achieving research goals without assistance from ground teams. Astronauts, in this case, were tasked with maintenance for one of the space station's crew pieces of exercise equipment, the T2 treadmill. The inspection procedure is typically available as a PDF document accessed on a computer or a tablet, which can be hard to hold whilst operating tools or flashlights or examining equipment in tight spaces. This time, no extra handheld instructions or communications with the ground teams were necessary, since all information was in plain sight. They were utilising Microsoft HoloLens augmented reality goggles, which had step-by-step guidance and cues to assist the work without referring to a separate screen. These were made available uh, for them to use. And this project kicks off in April 2022. So what do you think about that? I love any story that has to deal with augmented reality. I also love stories that involve space, and this is a perfect kind of confluence of them. Uh, so there's a lot of things to love about this article, and I think we'll we'll break it all down. Um, you know, I think we should talk probably about human factors issues in space and which ones apply to this specific context. 
maybe some general background on augmented reality. We talk a lot about virtual reality on the show, but I feel like augmented reality, mixed reality kind of gets uh, kind of the bucket kicked a little bit. And and so we'll we'll do that and then we'll get into the discussion. But I, I want to get your initial thoughts on this article. What, do you, what are you thinking? So I think it's it's really taking some some of these issues that uh, are going to be really pertinent, particularly for the Mars for the Mars missions. That the the really every every film you see, every uh, live stream you see from no matter who's launching that 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 link between what goes on in the spacecraft and um, and the ISS and and the ground stations is so interlinked that they procedurally that one can't it seems one can't do anything without the the ground control. Um, uh, you know, give them permission, giving them that, uh, that give them that push forward, and also checking and rechecking what they do because it is a safety critical environment. You make a mistake there, and and that's that's a bad day in the office. So to have, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So having this sort of technology there that that they can they can test, they can um, push together. That's going to give them the right sort of cues to do the right sort of job, and basically the actors that um, that 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 second set of eyes, effectively making sure that their that the, the procedures are being followed uh, properly and having the right information. That on on the first instance is brilliant. Now it's something it's not particularly new in a, in that in 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 some respects because there are projects that are going on in you know on Earth. That are, that are doing some some of that. So seeing some of that applied up there is is really really good. The second bit is I think really really cool as well. Using the using that headset and that augmented augmented reality in in of itself to basically reduce their workload. They're not having to hang around with PDF documents, a tablet, or whatever. The information is where they want it, where they want it, where they need it. Um, overlaying the the job that they're doing and therefore freeing up their hands to actually take do the job. So. On the on the face of it, you could see that this is actually a really simple thing, but I can see exactly with the way that the the uh, space works that this is going to be a real step change in the way that they they can uh, carry out their missions. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, so so let's let's actually talk about some of the human factors issues in space, just kind of general issues, right? Um, you know, you mentioned it uh, kind of briefly. They're they're dealing especially with maintenance tasks right now. You know, they have PDF pamphlets that might. <laughs> float away from them as they're trying to do the thing. Uh, and so, you know, thinking about um, basically, some, I have a list here of, of a bunch of different stressors that the human might encounter in space. And there's a couple, I think, that apply more specifically towards this context. So if you're thinking about like physical stressors, obviously there's there's microgravity, right? You, you have, there's the whole navigation issue of how do you move your body and 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 make sure that it is moving in the way that you want it to in microgravity because it behaves differently than you would, you know, on planet earth here. Um, and so, uh, there's the physical, uh, side of it. There's also habitat. You're, you're in this kind of environment where you might have vibration, noise, and lighting, um, that is distracting in some instances from the tasks at hand. Right. And so if you're trying to repair something, you might get distracted by, uh, vibration or noise that's happening, um, you know, around you. And, and especially because on the ISS, a lot of, uh, a lot of astronauts have a set plan of tasks that they need to get through in a certain day. And so they might be working, um, in, in closer proximity to you and their task might, you know, it might distract you from yours. Uh, so you have that to deal with. You have the psychological stressors of workload. You mentioned workload, uh, especially when it comes to, a repair task, right? Managing uh, uh, sort of what comes next. What did I already do? Where are all the pieces and parts? Uh, and and kind of the cognitive workload of actually putting this thing back together. And then uh, you have interpersonal stressors, which you know generally on board the ISS they they select astronauts that will get along with each other. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, there there still can be those issues of you know. Uh, personality clashes, culture, lack of privacy, those types of things. And I don't think that necessarily impacts the task at hand so much, but you do have those issues potentially when you're dealing with somebody from mission control, if, you know, perhaps they are seemingly bossy to you and they're just trying to tell you what to do. I mean, you know, thankfully the vetting process for astronauts is a little bit more rigorous than, uh, you know, getting a cashier 
at at a at a grocery store <laughs> to you know yeah. so so there's less probably interpersonal problems that you might deal with on that level but still something that you have to consider uh physiological stressors so you know vestibular problems you're moving around in space uh and then you have performance stresses which i think is is kind of um the big one here and this is more for things like spacewalks and yeah. and we can kind of think about maybe what the future of this holds at the end of this but you know you have these performance uh stressors like disorientation especially if you're outside um you know it, there's a big blue marble looking at you and you have the space station but that's all you have for cues as to whether you're up or down you have visual illusions going on uh attention deficits psychomotor problems proneness to error and so all these are critical like you said mission critical when it comes to repairing things on the space station i'm glad they're starting with something uh not necessarily unimportant but not mission critical they're starting with the treadmill uh any comments on on these stressors in space yeah i think it's i mean for me the two big hitters have to be the um the microgravity piece and and the workload because when we're talking about maintenance tasks, so you've, you, there's obviously two different types of maintenance. You've got your, you know, um, just general look keep of, of, of something, but then it's repairing something when it goes wrong. And so that inherently gives you a whole lot of stress because generally if something goes wrong, you weren't expecting it to go wrong. You're having to fix something. And yes, the, um, the treadmill might not be, you know, the most um, critical key part of equipment, but if they don't get on the treadmill, um, do their exercises once a day, they lose bone, bone density. And and so actually, it, the the long term consequence of not having such a piece of equipment could be quite key. So actually, if they don't, I, I could just sort of see that having more more stress on you because you're having to de deal with bits of uh, bits of kit, and they'll go on to maintaining more uh, more critical bits of kit. That that could give you a, a level of uh, workload and stress that you um, that you weren't anticipating. But also, microgravity can ha can play. Um, funny things with you with the amount of force and talk you put into tightening things up and actually could this and i'm 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 asking the question i don't know the, truly the answer but could this augmented reality give you um better cues about when things are tightened up enough as opposed to over tightening things and under tightening things um and 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 that type them type of cues to make sure you're you are taking out the right uh, the right equipment the the other bit as well is that is it'd be interesting to see how the confirmatory side of it works so it identifies right you need to take off this side panel you take the side panel off and does it then confirm confirm with you that um yes you've taken off the right side panel well done thumbs up um or a big crot have you taken you've taken off, you, you've unscrewed the wrong screw type type of affair um so it'd be interesting to see how in that display they they push them cues towards you um in a more of a nudge idea so you, you you're they're nudging you on the on down the checklist as opposed to um stressing you out by using it so um yeah i i think i think that side of it's quite exciting i think some of these cues that that you've um highlighted we can actually be some some of them are really good for highlighting the fact that we should be reducing some of that stress um as opposed to you know i, I I do get a bit pessimistic in some things that add stresses, but actually we would, would like to think that, you know, some of the performance stresses might decrease because you're not having to do quite so much. You don't have to hold three things with only two hands, for example. Yeah. So one more note uh, from Mateo in the chat here, you know, he says that the tasks that these astronauts do are really strictly planned, especially for sleeping, eating, exercise, uh, and especially given sort of the circadian rhythm uh, sunset, sunrise happening every 90 minutes while you're in orbit. Uh, so these are also things that you have to consider uh, sort of with those physical stressors. Uh, I do, you you kind of um, gave me a perfect segue and then I backed up, but let's talk about the augmented reality side of things because I think there we there's a lot of things that we can bring in from industry as to what's going on right now or kind of how the industry thinks about using augmented reality as a tool for maintenance and repair. And, um, you know, I think there, there's kind of a couple key pillars here, right? There's identifying uh, equipment or, or sort of bits and pieces of e equipment. Um, and then there's also identifying problems with that equipment. And that's kind of, I think, a little bit further down the line here with uh, at least where this specific uh, context is right this this on on the iss uh there's also sort of uh, retrieving that relative relevant um 
augmented reality information about those parts and pieces. And then there's sort of the augmentation itself of uh, the the feed that you are seeing through through your glasses in real time. There's that part of it. Uh, so, so let's kind of go through these one by one, right? Identifying the equipment and the parts and pieces that need to fit together or come apart in order to fix this thing. Um, so you can imagine, you know, you might give an object a subtle glow as, you know, this piece needs to uh, be removed or this piece needs to be tightened more. Um, and you can use color coding. And as long as that color coding is salient and understood, right? Green means good to go. Red means it's nowhere near where it should be. Yellow means you're getting close, especially with something like tightening a screw. That could be a good application. Um, having augmented reality on your head, uh, basically augmenting your vision hands-free, this is going to uh, open up a world of possibilities, especially when you think about um, sort of access to what needs to happen, right? Uh, and, and so it, it basically makes all this easy, hands-free. This data is readily available at your eyeballs. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of maintenance and repair, uh, th this can really have a large impact. Yeah, right. I mean, the some of the cute things I keep thinking could really do is if you've got something with um, you want to make sure that a piece of equipment is is exactly the right one so it might have its own QR code or its own you know its own serial number and the ability for not only for you to check that you got it but actually the system could check that for you as well and you know you, you, you show the QR code it goes it does a retrie retrieval uh, check and it gives you a big green tick to say yes it's it's not only it looks right but it is actually the right the right piece of equipment um, the but also, it'd be interesting to see that also um, linked with uh, with audio as well. To see, so if you get the um, um, if if it's not the right piece of kit, you get the big uh uh, um, you know, extra queuing because I, I think in some uh, maintenance tasks you can rely far too much on on just visual cues. So actually bringing some of that together um, would be really useful. But really making sure that you that there's so many errors where so where the wrong piece of kit or the wrong type of kit is um, is installed that this could um, just circumvent so many simple errors, uh, particularly when you know operators are, are tired, they've been working long shifts, um, or rep or repetitive tasks. Um, so there's there's going to be um, a, a huge step change when it, uh, by using augmented reality for for kit identification. Yeah, let's talk let's talk briefly about um, displaying that information too, because you can also overlay perhaps you know a task list off to the top of of the screen, kind of out of the way that they can reference as like a a progress bar almost. Um, you know, it's so a task one: unscrew the panel. Task two: uh, remove the part. Task three: identify the new part. Task four: place the part in and affix. And part five: reattach the panel. And you have kind of this running list of things that you need to do, um, with checkboxes that say you know whether or not something is completed. Walk you through each step, and maybe it expands and says you know hey here's all the pieces that need to go into this task right subtasks if you will. Um, so there's there's a, a lot of really cool ways that you can display the information. Um, and, you know, sort of like these tips or scenario steps or like you said, voice guided, those might actually be really helpful for trying to do something that typically was just relied on a PDF or maybe even a conversation on, on a radio with mission control uh, in the past. Right. So I think I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things that they can get from this. Also, you have. Um, you know, you're, you can collect data as well. If there's cameras on board, you can see what worked and what didn't and improve the system over time. Uh, and that's more like the data science side of things. Um, I tend to focus more on the human factors application. How do you sort of display this information? How do you make it efficient for the operator? But I think the data side of things is cool too, right? Using QR codes, understand which parts and pieces you're looking at. Uh, how do you get that data uh, where do you store it at? All that stuff is also problems that you'll have to think about, um, especially in a isolated uh, environment like the ISS and, and eventually Mars, right? You'll need some data storage for all that stuff. Um, the, the other really interesting bit about it as well is if we get this right, if this is if this gets right, then actually it reduces the training burden upon the crew themselves. 
because they won't need to train on how to do every little thing. Um, there'll be some obscure things or things that maybe they don't need to do very often or you know, really low risk stuff that they can have a confidence of going up and having a system like this to guide them. Um, so they don't, so they don't, so they only need to do it when they're actually having to do the task. They don't need to worry too much about overburdening themselves whilst they're on the ground. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and, and I think that goes for a lot of things, especially, um, some of those lesser performed tasks, but maybe mission critical. Yeah. Uh, and, and it could just make the world of a difference when you don't have to train for those things and you just put on the headset and it tells you what to do in the moment. Uh, even, even displaying information as simple as like videos uh, with the headset on, that could be, that's like a low form of training uh, or a lower, lower form of uh, what I would call instructed maintenance, but it's still effective, right? It can still be effective yeah. if you have, if you're able to watch somebody do the task uh, and then, and then actually perform the thing. Uh, you, you know, with, with, when it comes to AR, right, there's uh, obviously the functionality of, overlaying uh, all this information on on our visual system. But basically, you know, they, they have all this, uh, they have video communications uh, built into a lot of these devices, right? So so they could be on the phone with Mission Control. And, and I think you mentioned this earlier, Mission Control can actually be watching what they're doing live and walk them through it. Uh, and they can consult experts live in that moment uh, via a video call and, and, you know, here in low earth orbit, that's, that's possible when it gets to Mars, it's a little less possible because of the delay, uh, between, but I think, you know, you test it close by and then, you know, eventually it'll, it'll work its way out, uh, once it's kind of proven itself. Um, I think you mentioned speech to text too, which could also be useful. Yeah, I think anything to enable them to do the sort of hands-free note-taking, hands-free record-keeping, um, that's all um, really useful. Because it's interesting that the actual the, the use of HoloLens isn't new in the ISS at the moment. And that was one of the things that I think um, confused me in the pre-show, was the that they've actually had um, the HoloLens up there since 2015. But that has all been around what they call the sidekick, which one is, as you say, is the um, is remote expert mode where the ground operator can see what they're doing and or the, the um the the second mode which is a procedures mode which allows them to step through critical procedures but this is but this particular um use of it is the first time they've done it for actual maintenance um which i think it just shows that we that it's really stepping onto on onto new new territory it's it's it, they're trying to push the boundaries of where this technology will go and and as you say if we are going to get to mars which is um Certainly, if if they want anybody for a Mars mission, I'm definitely front and center, and I'm quite happy to uh, <laughs> to do that. Just as a small um, advert there, um, not that I'm fit enough, light enough, or anything like to do it, but I'm I'm very keen. Um, but if they if if you're going to have more and more essentially novices in space, um, and the ability to get people and potentially civilians who might have to carry out maintenance um, or any sort of activities. Um, the only way you can really do that with any sense of um, confidence is by having these types of systems. So they're going to be they're going to feature massively um, as, as long as this you know the experiments like these that they're doing at the moment proves that they can actually effectively work in the, in that environment. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, and in fact, you you brought up a good one: is that the Hololens has been on the International Space Station space station since 2015, and in fact, we actually did an interview with one of the Human Factors Prize winners from HFES uh, back in 2018, Adam Brawley. He actually talked us through uh, what it means to use the Hololens on the ISS. So go listen to that interview if you haven't already. Uh, I will say, you know, taking a step back, let's look at some examples of augmented reality repair and maintenance in industry. Right, so you have companies like Bosch. Uh, repairing automotive vehicles. Uh, and, and some of the metrics around these are really impressive too, right? So you have this 15% fixed time decrease for simple car repairs. Uh, you have Huawei uh, repairing DC to AC solar pa power inverters, uh, reporting a significant decrease in technicians' cognitive load and a service time decrease. Um, and, you know, in industry, it's a little bit more uh, challenging because you have sort of these pushback from employees trying to get used to this stuff but uh, ultimately it 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 the results kind of show themselves right they they have 
good results here. And, and I think, you know, this is the future and, and the ISS is kind of uh, a good test bed for this kind of technology. Yeah, it is. I mean, that the employee resistance, I think, is um, is a really is something we is a hurdle we've got to get over. We've uh, I've encountered that with trying to push new technologies into things like the military domain, in particularly into specialist domains where only a, you've only got a few specialist operators can do job X, Y, Z. And I think um, you know astronauts just fall into that. You know, it's a very it's a very tight skill. You have to be a very good you know fast jet pilot before you go and do it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And where I've seen some new technologies come in and to make people's lives easier, they are, they can have a, a reaction to, well, hold on, that very complex job was my job and I'm the only person who knew how to do it. You're putting me out of a job. And actually where really what we're doing is, no, it, it's it's not. You know, we're trying to help you do, you know, make, make your job safer. We're trying to free you up to do yet more other things. Um, but sometimes, they, you know, you can get that resistance because you think that they're, they're, you're taking away their specialism, their, their reason for being. So... Yeah, I don't know how much else I have to say about this. I think it's really cool to see, you know, this this move into the maintenance re repair domain within the ISS and to kind of see it really take off, uh, pun intended. I, <laughs> do you have any other things to add to this story before we kind of get out of here and, and get to the next part? Well, I think the only thing I would say is that if anybody wants us to go and actually go up to the ISS and see this in action, just for the you know, ju just to make sure our, our integrity is is in the story is right, then please do give us a shout because I'm free this weekend. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. We'll uh, we'll take it to space. Uh, I think we got to earn a little bit more Patreon dollars before we can afford a trip up there, though. But anyway, uh... <laughs> anyway. Uh... It'll be fine. <laughs> Huge thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Science X Network and NASA for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, you can join me on Office Hours every Monday where I find these news stories. And we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, for paving our way to the International Space Station, buying us a ticket there, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, uh, patrons Michelle Tripp. Uh, patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. If you want to become a patron, that's easy for you to do. Uh, it's, it's only a couple bucks if you want to get Human Factors Minute. You can donate as little as a dollar and as much as $300 if that's something that you want to do. Anyway, with the whole Twitch leak earlier this week, I thought it'd be a good time to reveal how much we make. It's not much. It's like $59 a month. So, you know, we're not making thousands of dollars like some of those streamers are. Uh, so with that... Um, you know, that money all gets fed back into the show. and We don't make a cent off of it. Uh, I think we're still in the hole. Anyway, I think it's time for us to switch gears and get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from. This week it's all Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. If you find these answers useful, give us a like to help other people find this content. We got three tonight, uh, one from the Human Factors subreddit, one from the HCI subreddit, and one from the User Experience subreddit. So we're getting from multiple communities this week. Uh, this first one here is going to be from Dicons on the HCI subreddit. This is how to put school company HCI projects in LinkedIn. They go on to write, hello, I am currently an HCI master's program, and we have been working with two major companies in one of my classes. I would like a way to include this in LinkedIn somehow, or by extension portfolio, that's me uh, expanding on that. Is there any way to do this 
uh, or is this not good practice? I'm thinking of adding it under projects. Please let me know. Barry, have you dealt with this before? Um, so yes and no. The I've when I've done um, a project for, as part of my degree, then yes, I had that. That was part of um, you know I, I had an external sponsor who who wanted to play with that, um, and so we could put that on my LinkedIn. There's a, there's a couple of things to look at. If it was just a just a straight school project that everybody else is doing um, in your class, and nothing truly makes it unique, I would suggest probably not. Um, you want to stay away from that. However, this has got um, an, an external um a company involved so they, there's an element of they wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't some sort of requirement around it um and so yeah put it in there on as a project try not don't disguise it to try not to make it more than what it is so highlight that it's a it's a joint school company project um but also highlight in there as well why you think it's it's different why what you've done is a bit more and is is worthy the reason for doing that, I think, is uh, particularly you probably won't have many other uh, projects or um, uh, you know examples of your work under your belt at this point. And one of the things that a lot of companies are always crying out for, and it seems to be a classic, and it, it is a bit irritating if I'm honest, where they want people who've just come straight out of university, but we want to have loads of experience. Ten years experience. That. Yes. Um, but also we want to pay you for, like you're still an undergraduate. So... If you've got experiences like this that have, have a certain amount of validity, yes, put them into into LinkedIn. Um, put them under the projects piece, under the project segment, and maybe even highlight them under the under some of your career highlights. Um, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, this one, there's, there's a couple uh, nuanced things here that I think are important to discuss, right? There's, this person asks if it's a good practice. I think it can be. The thing I would caution against is if you've signed an NDA that says you cannot talk about this information, you're going to have to disguise that pretty good. Uh, I would still say that you've partnered with that company to say that you have that experience, but trying to dance around a specific product that you might not be able to talk about until it's public is going to be difficult. And so there's a whole skill involved with that. And I think there's plenty of resources out there for how to deal with a portfolio that you can't necessarily share, like working with, you know, in, in a classified domain or working under NDA, there's resources out there. So that's one consideration. Another consideration too, is be sure to be clear about what your responsibility on this project was. Chances are, if it is um, sort of for a class, there's going to be a lot of people with their hands on this. And so the, uh, what what was your contribution to it might get masked by that. And so be prepared to speak about your contribution when you talk about this work in an interview or on your portfolio. And I think that is a large part of it. Uh, in terms of what you share, I would say document everything. Maybe don't share everything. Document everything that you do work on projects with, even if it is just a low-level uh, you know, classroom assignment, right? If it's, I don't know, uh, a task analysis on something, document that. I wouldn't share like a task analysis project on LinkedIn as a professional thing, but it's a skill set that you have and you've documented it and you can talk about it in an interview or, uh, you know, in a, in a situation where you need to prove your knowledge on something. And, and just having that repository of skills is always something that I recommend. Like I, for example, I still have, when I was in my undergrad, I, I worked with ketamine and, and rodents. And so I still have that, you know, kind of in my back pocket. And if, if that ever comes up, I have that skill set and I know I do, I can talk about it. Uh, but it's not something that I publicize, right? It's unless it's in the context of right now. Uh, so, so document everything because you never know when those skills will come in handy that you want to put on a resume or something like that. Uh, any closing thoughts on this one, Barry? Yeah, I think just to follow up what you said there, it, uh, we more when people are lo looking at this sort of thing on LinkedIn, we're more interested in, in the how, not the what. So, you know, I work a lot in defense and it, it, it's a problem I have now. What can I put on my website that um, that we can do? But it's more about the skills and the, the, the technologies that we've that you can use and apply um, is the key thing, really, that you want that you want to get out there. And I did think we'd be talking about ketamine tonight. I, that, <laughs> that, that, that's 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 brought me out of different places.
<laughs> there we go. All right. So let's get into this next one here. This one's exciting. And this one actually comes from the Human Factors subreddit. I think this is a really interesting point of discussion. This is contract versus permanent positions. They write, hello, I'm a recent graduate with a Human Factors Master's and a bachelor in psych- Bachelor's in Psychology with a research focus. I've completed an internship in medical device consulting, have TA'd graduate courses in Human Factors, uh, and been a research assistant as well. I've been applying to jobs broadly. I recently uh, went and applied to UX research, research position that was advertised by a prominent laboratory equipment company in the Northeast USA. This was labeled as a permanent full-time position with benefits, 80K salary. Luckily, I was called for interviews. I went through four rounds of interviews with the company and received positive feedback at each gate. I was asked to meet with the team today to discuss the opportunity available. So I believed I was about to enter uh, offer negotiations with the employer. However, upon entering the meetings, I was told that I was a star applicant, interviewed well, and they wanted me on the team with one catch. The position I applied for was now to be filled internally, and I would be offered a contract position until December 31st, and right now, as of this recording, it's October 7th, with no guarantee of permanent employment beyond that. Has anyone experienced this in the job search? Uh, is uh, Is it that I did not perform well in the interviews despite the good feedback? If they wanted to hire internally, why post the job to external job sites and have me go through interview process only to revoke the position? I don't know what to think. Like I said, I'm a recent grad, so I'm not sure if this is common practice or alludes to some red flags of this employer. I'd love any insight you may have. Thank you. This one's a long one. Barry, I want to get your thoughts on this. So there's a couple things here, right? There's uh, they, they were a star interviewee. They were offered the position and then they rescinded it because they or maybe didn't rescind it, but they rescinded the position because they filled it internally. Uh, and then let's talk about contract versus permanent positions. I think there's a couple of things there. Yeah. So the the whole position being filled by, filled internally, that just screams internal company politics. That I, I wouldn't take that personally if I was you. That is stuff that happens, I think, fairly regularly. It is easier to hire or it is more beneficial to the company to hire internally. There might just be some HR drive or there might be some senior decision that that has made that happen. The fact that they've had um, really good feedback all the way through and they still want to go with them and have a contract position until December 31st, um, that's kind of what they do with that is kind of up to them. I've been in that position myself and um you know i sort of did it and i I turned it down and i said if you want me you want me um maybe i was arrogant and young and carefree um but if it's a job that you that you really really like then actually you know if if like say it's 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 uh, october now a couple of months worth of work to show where you know that could almost be as good as um you or them anyway it could give you that that experience in the grand scheme of things no job even with a permanent contract um no job is worth more than um, a month's notice. So, you know, there is that sort of element around it. Um, so I wouldn't take it necessarily too personally, and I would leave it really much down to you. Would you Do you want to spend two months doing a job that might not lead anywhere else, but it could give you a couple of months' worth of um, salary and some more experiences to take you on to, onto that next role? Um, so that that's kind of my thoughts around that, the difference between contract and permanent positions. And I think this has slightly different connotations around the world as well. So I've done contract roles, I've done, um, and I've had permanent roles as well. And certainly in the UK, having the the permanent positions, it's great if you want stability. Um, if you want things like your, your holiday, your sick pay, all that sort of stuff, then um, then that's, that's great. Um, permanent positions are really good. And they give you that feeling of, um, of longevity. Whereas contract positions, if you if you can be more um, more mobile, if you're wanting to try out different co- uh, companies, try and work with different projects on a wide variety of projects, actually contracts can be really good, um, and they also give you an ability to go and try something and walk away with no with with much lesser hard feelings because contractors are slightly more easy come easy go. Um, in the UK, we are going through this thing called, um, which everybody will love if you're in the UK, called IR35, which means that the ability to get contract positions just to do the man, manpower type roles is much harder. Um, so they, that, that is going to become much rarer in the UK. But how does it work over in the US? Is it any different? Uh, a little bit. Let's let's break this down. So 
I I agree with mostly what you said. Um, and I think let's let's talk about this piece by piece, right? So so there's the you you were a star interviewer, and they still offered you a position, and it's for a couple months. And uh, I think Barry, you actually even changed my mind on on approaching this because you're right. If this person is just out of college, it's it's a it's a great thing to get into. Um, at least to start building that portfolio and 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 getting into industry, getting your hands dirty. They didn't necessarily say that it would be a continued position, but if you are looking for jobs, you could still look for jobs on top of doing work and getting experience. And I know that's a lot of work, but if you are just out of school, chances are you're young, not necessarily. Chances are you're early in your career, and so you're willing to take more risk and just because you take the job with one company doesn't mean that you can't keep looking. And so I think that's that's a good way to think about it, right? You're you're getting your hands dirty, you're getting experience, and you're still looking for more. And approaching it from that way is something that I wouldn't have recommended before hearing Barry talk. So thank you. <laughs> I would have been like, oh, if you don't have time for me, then don't, <laughs> you know, is, is it worth it? No. Uh, but I think you've changed my mind on that. So let's talk about contracted versus permanent positions. Uh, there's a couple ways this works in the U.S. You have contracts that hire uh, individual contractors. You have contracts that hire companies that have people at them. And then you have sort of these permanent positions. And so uh, when you think about you as kind of a lone uh, freelance contractor, this is the most scary you can get, right? It's There's not that stability. But like Barry was mentioning, there is a lot of variety. Uh, and and you could jump from one project to another, sort of build up your experience. And there's sort of the middle step where if you work at a contracting agency or a human factors agency that accepts a bunch of different contracts, you can jump from project to project and chances are they'll have something lined up for you that matches your skill set and experience that you can then, um, you know, you'll still bounce from contract to contract, but it's kind of like the middle ground of getting that, uh, you know, the benefits, 401k, all that stuff uh, at, a, at a company. It's still a little scary, though, because your business is still driven by your work. Uh, not like it's not anywhere, but, you know, there's a little bit more risk involved than if you were to have a permanent position with like a big tech company that has all these infinite resources that they can keep paying people to, you know, come on. Anyway, so so that I think is a safe middle ground. And then you have sort of the permanent positions where you're a very specialized role at a, at a company and you're working on the same product for a very long time. It does offer that longevity. And um, I think it really depends on where you're at in your career. I would say, you know, for early career professionals, I'd almost recommend going to a, a human factors or design agency that accepts a lot of different contracts, getting your experience with many different types of projects um, in hopefully different industries. But I, I think just in terms of, you know, what I would prefer, I, I'm at a point in my life now, I have a young child and a wife that depend on me to bring in income. So I'm looking for something a little bit more stable. <laughs> uh, and so that contract to contract, you know, I've done both and, and that contract to contract life is a little bit more risky. Um, and I think we've actually talked about this on the show before, but I mean, as you build contacts, as you make your network broader, there are going to be more opportunities for you. You know, if if a contract ran out, there are a bunch of people I could reach out to and say, hey, I need work. And chances are they would have something available or they'd make something work because I know people now. Right. And that wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. So that's something to consider. Uh, as you get older, though, you might want to get more in that. Uh, I don't know. It, it does depend, because if you feel like you have more networks and that's something that you enjoy jumping from thing to thing, then you could totally do that. If you feel like you have enough security or, you know, if if um, your spouse is the primary breadwinner or something, however you want to justify it. Right. I think there's uh, it's all a calculation of risk. And that's something that you need to take into account. But I think in this case, you should totally do it. That's. Anything yeah. else? <laughs> yeah, it, it just made, I, I was just listening to the way that you evaluated where you should do contract and I sort of did the other way around because I started off in the big companies and then after I'd had, we'd had a third child and I decided to go it alone um, 
just because I could after a night out at the pub. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. Um, but the, the the only other smaller thing nuance with that is, um, I mean, we, we're assuming that this company is is quite a large company, and if and I think that this just the whole premise of it says that it's 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 there's internal politics and all that sort of stuff. If it's a very small company trying to play this trick, um, then walk away. Um, uh, yeah. That is that that they are trying to mess you around, and um, they they either can't afford to keep you for a at least a six month period, or they they don't know quite what they're what they're doing. So if it's a, if it's a very small company trying to play the trick, then that would that would send up alarm bells for me. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, let's get into this last one here. Beginner UX project. This one's by uh, I love Moose on the user experience subreddit. Hi, guys. I want to undertake my first project and try to improve my skills throughout the UI and UX process. I want to know if you start a project by thinking of a problem first that needs solving or if you just carry out user research on existing products to identify problems. I'm asking because I have my own pain points with certain apps, but I don't know how I would fit the user research around it as the problem would be defined already. Um in the case that I find my own problems, do I first present my personal pain points in the project and then try to justify it through user research? If not, how would you suggest I go about starting the UX project in this case? So I, I'm, I'm sensing a couple questions here. There's one, how do I approach a project? Um, how do I build my skills? And how do I sell what I've done? Right. I think those are kind of the three major questions here. Barry, take it away. I was kind of hoping you wouldn't do that. Um, it's the this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I interpret this as they are trying to do, you know develop their own skills and they want to be able to have a project and therefore to use as a, almost a showcase so that, that that they can do their skills. Um, so fundamentally, you go with what you know. If you know that there is so, there's two things you can do. You can either start a project from scratch. And so that would be the equivalent of a, of a client walking in or a customer walking in and saying, I need one of these. I don't know quite what it is, um, but I, I need I need this piece of this app or this something that does X. And so then you're going to go and do that um, that research, aren't you, into right, um, the exploration with the, with the client. And if you think, you know, effectively you're the client at that point, you know, start sketching out, you know, what, 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 the, what, what they're trying to achieve, what the requirements are, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to do something so that that is showing you how you would um, launch a project, how you t take something from scratch and develop something from, um, from nothing all the way, all the way through to all, all the way through to an app or uh, a design for an app. The other part of what you're, of what's been highlighted is how do you um, troubleshoot um, an app um, or a, whatever it is, I'll say it's an app in this case. And so how do you evaluate what is already there? How do you get the um, client feedback, sorry, the user feedback into what other people's pain, pain points are just because just because we as operators, are, just because we as um, HF experts see pain points that we would identify doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that we're right. Um, I'm normally right, but not all of our, us as HR practitioners are, are right all the time. Um, and so it's, it's about, so that, that's, that is a different skill. It's a different ability to be able to go and see what somebody else has produced, break it down into co like things like cognitive walkthroughs, et cetera, et cetera. Work out what it is that that, that, that app was there, was created to, um, created to do, and does it meet that need? And also has the uh, as the focus shifted is is does the app was created to do one thing, but does it now fulfill another function, um, and therefore could be grown in that way. Um, so you but you want to choose projects, you want to choose them sort of things that develop your own skills. So identify a bit of self reflection is needed. So where what do you, are you, where are you strong? Where are you weak? Um, what what do you need practice in doing? practice the stuff that it's, it's easy to go and say, um, actually, I'm very good at this. I'll do another one of these and we'll write that up and look and show how great I am at say a task analysis or something like that. Find stuff that you don't like doing. Um, put you, if, if it's for your own stuff, make, put yourself into an uncomfortable position um, and, and flex those uncomfortable muscles because they will become big and strong in the end. Yeah. Let's, I, I want to talk about this because this this is such an interesting question and and something I know a lot of people struggle with, especially as they are starting their careers off and they want to develop things for their portfolio. And I think there's two ways of really approaching how do you select a project for you, like a pet project for you to work on that you can use for your portfolio. And I, I see it two ways, right? 
there's one, you are embedded into a community already. Like, let's say it's for a, a video game or something with a very vocal community, right? I, I'm using video games as an example because those communities typically are very vocal about what they want. And the development teams may already be working on those things, but it's something that you can uh, at least back with data that is a user requested feature, function, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so, you know, spending time on subreddits about a specific game and saying, hey, this would be a million times better. Then you go back and you source all those comments and say, here's the problem space. Here's the users that are defining this problem space. Uh, and I'm going to go out and solve it, whether it's a design for product. You know, I wouldn't have access to the source code or anything like that. But you could at least design a solution that would be based on user feedback. And I think that is probably the most sound way of approaching a problem because then you have that user data to back your claim that this thing needs fixing. There's the weaker argument of, I don't like how this functions in this app and therefore I am going to fix it to match my own needs because that's not user driven, that is you driven. And you know, like Barry said, you can be right, but you don't have that data to back it up. And especially if you're earlier on in your career, you might want to have uh, that that user data to say, look, I went out to the community to see what was going on with this thing. There was a problem that needed solving and I solved it. That's kind of the approach that I would take. If there's you know a product that you're passionate about, browse the forms, browse whatever, because there's probably someone complaining about something. And uh, sometimes even forms will have uh, you know these these uh, help tickets that say, I want this feature or feature requests. And a lot of times they'll be voted on. And so you can see how many people want that thing. And that's that's a great starting point for projects, um, exploring those products, right? So like, I think Discord even has them, right? You, you can have like, I want this integration with this tool. What does that look like? Well, you can go out and solve it, uh, or at least what it might look like final product. So I think that's a good way of approaching it. Um, I'm... I'm and then, and then talking about your work is a whole separate thing that we've touched on a million times. I don't, I think that's a separate question. I don't know. Anything else to add to this one? Yeah, ju just processes. Um, it's not, again, kind of touched on, on it earlier. It's not about the output in this case. It's about you you having the skills to be able to go through, um, to go through the right process to, processes to show that you've got the experience and confidence. So make it all about that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right, let's get into this last part of the show called One More Thing. It needs no introduction. Uh, it's just where we talk about one more thing. Barry, what's what's your uh, one more thing this week? Well, last week I had a limb chopped off. Or it felt oh, no. like I had a limb chopped off. It's when um, WhatsApp and Facebook and LinkedIn and um, Messenger all went down. And it was really weird because it was the first time I've been away um, away on business in a hotel, um, you know, since... In, since the since the pandemic and I was going to a new client site and all this sort of stuff and I was very excited and um chatting to my better half and that and then suddenly everything started to go down it was really interesting um a thought from that perspective but it's a lot of people a lot of companies in particular have been using whatsapp as a primary means of communication and the amount of in the UK we had the uh, practitioners in our national health service and things said I can't talk to the rest of our teams because whatsapp's down or they a lot of companies are not having the redundancy in place thing, you know, because there are other um, communication channels out there that, that, that we've come to rely on one group of instant messaging or messaging tools and um, things together um, to make that work. The other interesting bit about it was that uh, when it came to light about what had happened is that Facebook used Facebook for absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the way that they had to solve it was literally go and get a guy with a um, uh, an angle grinder because the the the, should, the the server rooms were locked because they used Facebook to lock the doors and do all that sort of thing, and so they ended up having to use an angle grinder to get in to be able to re to reset everything. Um, yeah, so it, a, a lot of people had a lot of pain and, and felt like they um, they they'd had a part of their consciousness ripped away for a whole was it six or seven hours or whatever it was that it was there. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 interesting how different parts of the world reacted to that because I'd say about half the states were like, "Oh my gosh, I can't do anything. I can't get, I can't read about the microchips and vaccines um or anything like that." And, <laughs> and the yeah. other half was like, "Oh, Facebook's down." 
Uh, and yes. I was definitely in the, oh, it's down. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's, it's incredible because you're right. WhatsApp is used uh, worldwide and it's especially used for international communication a lot of the time because there's not uh, any of the like fees associated with using your cell phones or anything like that. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge deal uh, despite me saying, oh, it's down. I didn't even realize. So um, there's an interesting other knock on as well was, so I use Telegram quite a lot and, um, and obviously then, and most people then jumped on Twitter um, and them systems started to quake yeah. because of the increased usage though. Twitter, I think, played an absolute blinder um, in some of their social media coverage. Because whoever was on their social media desk that night deserves a medal because some of the stuff that they were pumping out and a lot of the other companies were jumping on board as well. Um, so some of the threads that you um, that, that were on there are well worth a um, going back and having a look at because there were some absolute stars. Oh, man. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy week for tech, right? Because that happened, what, Tuesday, Monday? It happened earlier this week. Yeah. And for us. yeah, it's Tuesday night and, and for you and Tuesday morning for us. And then Wednesday you had the big Twitch leak uh, that, you know, revealed salaries of all these popular streamers and um, huge data compromise. It's it's a pretty big deal. And so, like, it's been a crazy week in tech. But yes, I agree. The, the person who writes the Twitter recaps is uh, definitely needs a promotion. I think they've done a great job. <laughs> Uh, what's your your one more thing this week yeah my one more thing is this um it's this little indie television show called uh squid game uh i don't have you heard of it i've heard of it i've watched one episode of it but it was one (laughs) of the things that um i sort of had it on the background and i think i need to give it some i need to give it some love i've got i need to actually watch it properly and i can't just watch it out the corner of my eye so have you have you been watching it so I finished it. I'll try to avoid uh, spoilers best I can. I, I won't spoil it. Don't worry. Um, if not, just skip ahead like three minutes or something. Uh, <laughs> I promise I won't spoil it, but you never know. Anyway, so uh, we've been watching this because, um, you know, my wife mentioned it to me and she said it's it, a lot of people have been talking about it. And I, I hadn't heard about it, um, probably because I had been like off of my news apps for like a couple days. And apparently it's this big worldwide phenomenon. Uh, everyone's excited about it. Um, and I thought it was okay. And, and there's like a lot of hype around it. I thought it was okay. It was, it was good. Um, and, but my, my wife had given me the heads up. She said, it's like, she said, it's like a battle Royale. And that's all I needed to hear for me to tune out immediately or not tune out immediately. I was tuned in, but to shut myself off emotionally from the characters, put it that way. Um, because certain characters die and uh i don't think that's a spoiler it's revealed in the first episode that a lot of people yeah. <laughs> so so certain people die and i i intentionally distanced myself from those characters from from everyone because i was like if i don't i'm going to be an emotional wreck and you know and sure enough my wife didn't and she was an emotional wreck oh no <laughs> Anyway, uh, all that to be a warning. If you watch Squid Game, don't get invested in the characters. Um, I think that will serve your emotion. Or you know what? Do it. I don't know. It, it, emotion is human. So do what do what you what you want. It saved me some some tears, though. I, I will say that. Fair enough. So did, did you? We if she was an emotional wreck, did you do the whole comforting thing and make sure she was okay, or did you? Were you more of the I told you so? You shouldn't have got invested that one i was i was more gloaty i was like you know i'm really glad i didn't get emotionally invested look at you you're a mess uh i love my wife don't get me wrong Um, that's not the way to get ahead you realize that (laughs) it is not just some personal advice here having you know for however many years we've been married i should know that um and i i found out a while ago that's not the way to get ahead in life yeah no i know (laughs) it was it was more of a playful thing don't worry uh anyway i think that's gonna be it for today everyone if you like this episode we do invite you to check out our interview with adam brawley from hfes 2018 where we talked to him about his human factors prize research on using augmented reality aboard the iss Uh, and comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion you can join us on our slack or discord communities you can always visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news, 
If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you can leave us a five-star review, tell your friends about us, or consider supporting us on Patreon, or even Human Factors Minutes, now available everywhere on Spotify. It's, it's kind of out there. Anyway, as always, links to all of our socials on our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for filling in again. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about augmented reality? You can find me on Twitter, B-A-Z underscore K, or you can find me on the 1202 Human Factors podcast and any podcast directory near you. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific uh, for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it It depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.